Hello and welcome to the What Does It Say podcast. My name is Josh and I will be your host. In this podcast, I'd like to begin with the book of Job. And in this podcast, I'd like for us to slowly yet thoughtfully walk through the words of the Lord in the Bible. And so beginning here with the book of Job, we'll begin here in chapter 1 and in verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Edition. It says in Job chapter 1 verse 1, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now Job was a historical figure who lived during an unknown time in this land called us and we don't know exactly where this location was where this land of us was and we don't quite know when job lived uh, some have speculated that perhaps the land of us is near or in the land of eden uh, they would connect lamentations 4 verse 21 um, and say that us is in the land of eden and some might say that Job lived during the patriarchal times, perhaps because Job at the end of the book and here at the beginning offers sacrifice for people. Um, but we don't know exactly when he lived or if he even was a Jew. And if Job was not a Jew, perhaps during the Mosaic time or the time of Solomon, Job would have been able to sacrifice to the Lord outside of the traditions and laws of God found with the people of Israel. This is a very interesting book. I personally love this book. It's not a book we study through very often, but yet there's a great lesson and many lessons that we can find in this book. And perhaps the big lesson behind this book is this. Can a person stay faithful to the Lord even in the midst of trying times? Or perhaps better put, can a person suffer, and to use the words of Peter in 1 Peter, can a person suffer as a Christian and still stay true to him? So Job here in verse 1 is said to be a man who was blameless, upright, and fearing God and turning away from evil. You can't get much better than that. Blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Job in this book is seen as the most righteous man during his time. As we'll see later in the book, Job has three friends who come to him, and later it is revealed that there is a fourth called Elihu. And this book is structured uh, very purposefully. Chapters 1 and 2 are narrative or story. Chapter 3, Job cries out to the Lord. In chapter 4 through 37, we have speeches of Job and his friends. And here's the order of that. Chapters 4 through 5 are the first speech of Eliphaz. Chapter 6 and 7 is Job's response to that first speech. 
In chapter 8, Bildad speaks to Job. Job responds in chapters 9 through 10. Zophar has a speech, his first speech in chapter 11. Job replies to that in chapters 12 through 14. Eliphaz has his second speech in chapter 15. And Job responds to that in 16 through 17. Bildad speaks up again in verse 18, uh, chapter 18, and Job replies in chapter 19. Zophar speaks in chapter 20, and Job replies again in chapter 21. Eliphaz has his third and final speech in chapters 22. Job responds to that in chapters 23 through 24. And Bildad has his final speech in chapter 25 with Job replying in chapter 26. And then in chapters 27 through 31, Job has a message for all of his friends. And at the end of chapter 31, it says, the words of Job are ended. And so chapter 32 starts a new section. This man named Elihu who is younger than all those who have spoken so far. He speaks up and has four speeches for us. The first speech is in chapter 32 through 33. The second speech is in 34. The third speech is in chapter 35. And the fourth and final speech of Elihu is chapters 36 through 37. A new section begins in chapter 38. And in chapter 38 through 41, God speaks to Job. In chapter 42, Job repents. His friends are called on by God to repent. And then Job is blessed. And so really, this book begs the readers to ask themselves this very question. Am I going to serve God no matter what I go through, no matter if it makes sense to me or not? Will I follow the Lord until the end, even when there seems to be no hope in it? Even though it seems that there is no hope in serving the Lord in this life. Though, as a side note, there's a debate whether Job really knew anything about eternity and about the afterlife. And so Job comes at the sufferings, as we'll see beginning in chapter 3, from the perspective of, this is all there is, why am I suffering? And so for us today, when we suffer no matter if there seems like the suffering will end here on this earth and in this life, those who are Christians can hold on to the fact that we know that we will have hope in the end and in eternity. So Job, again in verse 1, is described as this great man. Blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And this is really the peak status of righteousness. You can't get much better than that. Let's continue reading in verse 2. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. 
His possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 5 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the east. His sons used to go out and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This Job did continually. So Job here has the perfect amount of sons. The idea of seven in the Bible is God's number. It's the perfect number. He had three daughters, and so that adds up to ten children. Again, uh, some speculate that the idea of ten in the Bible is the idea of perfection. He had the perfect amount of sheep and camels. Again, seven and three, resulting in ten. He had 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Again, there's another number, 10 or 10 or 1,000. And he had very many servants. And he's described as the greatest man of the East. Now, was he the greatest man of the East because of all the things he had or because he was righteous? Perhaps both. But I think it would make more sense for him to be described as the greatest man of the East because of his relationship with the Lord. Without the Lord and without his, uh, without his righteousness and his servitude toward the Lord, all of his blessings would have meant nothing. There are many kings in the Bible who had many blessings, many possessions, many servants, perhaps great lands. But if they were not faithful and righteous before the Lord, what did that mean to have all those things? They certainly were not described as being someone great. No, they were described as being wicked before the Lord. And notice what his sons did. In verse 4, it says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each on his, own, on his day. And so perhaps each day or each time they had a feast, a different son would be hosting it. And so they kind of had this cycle they went through. And so they would invite all of their uh, siblings to come eat and drink. And they would feast and have fun. But Job, what does Job do in verse, uh, in verse 5? Once his children were done feasting, he would send and consecrate them. And look what he would do. He would rise early in the morning. This is important to Job. This is significant. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings for each one of them, because he was worried that perhaps 
they might have sinned in drinking and eating. Perhaps they have uh, cursed God or sinned in their hearts in some way. And so Job was concerned with the spiritual well-being of his children. Job was not a father who, when his children were old enough to be out on their own, as these children seemed to indicate they're old enough to be living on their own, Job was not a father who said, you guys can do whatever you want, leave me out of it. No, Job was the kind of father that cared about his children, even after they have become the age that they can live on their own and prosper on their own. And so Job really is shown as being this great man, this godly man, this caring man, But yet, Job must suffer and must be uh, tried through uh, suffering and through these tests that Satan puts him through. Though, as we'll see, God really takes responsibility for the sufferings of Job. And perhaps the reason why God will take um, the, the, for, perhaps the reason why God will take responsibility is because it is his power that is behind the suffering of Job. Satan can only do so much to Job and only what the Lord had allowed him to do. And so perhaps for that reason, the Lord takes responsibility. But imagine if Job never suffered what if Job never went through these trials? This book would have only been five verses long. And if this book was only five verses long, would it really be all that helpful for us? I don't believe so. Because Job would have been seen as a man who would have prospered and did great things and had some children and was righteous and that's all cool and then the book ends. Where's the real help? Where's the real uh, encouragement? And perhaps the only real encouragement you would have been able to find in a book this short would have been that if you do right, God will bless you. But God has a different idea for Job. God wants to use Job to be a blessing in other ways than just these first five verses. And so let's continue reading here and in verse 6. There's a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job serve God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and in his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands 
and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand on now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. There was this day, in verse 6, where the sons of God came to the Lord. Who are these sons of God? Well, we can't quite know for sure who the sons of God are. It is apparent and evident to me that the idea of the sons of God here in the Old Testament, if you want to cross-reference um, Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, and in verse 1, it says, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, so they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, even in the book of Genesis, there is a question of, are the sons of God the idea of angels, or is it a contrast between the descendants of, Shem, uh, uh, of Seth or the descendants of Cain. Now, I think that when Peter in 1 Peter 5 8 talks about um, talks about these spirits that Jesus goes to, if you want to turn there with me, 1 Peter 5. And, and in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, it says. Um, excuse me, that is the wrong verse. In chapter 3 and in verse 18, for Christ also died for, also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah and so on and so forth. And so I really think this idea of these spirits that Jesus goes to, these sons of God, these disobedient people in the time of Noah who God calls, calls the sons of God are angels. And that to me makes the most sense. Because why would God call them call the sons of Seth the sons of God? And perhaps it was because they were righteous, but no, they weren't righteous because they were killed along with the sons of Cain because of their disobedience. And so to me, it makes the most sense that in Genesis 6 and Job 1, the sons of God are therefore angels.
And I think that would make more sense here in this text when it says the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Did Satan walk as a man around the sons of Seth or around righteous men? Did Satan come in human form? Was Satan somehow a spirit among flesh? I think it makes the most sense that this is a spiritual image of spiritual angels with a spiritual Satan coming before the Lord in heaven. And so the Lord sees Satan and asks him, where do you come from? And Satan says in verse 7, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Satan had been doing his laps, if you will. He had been going around and seeing what the sons of men were doing. What were humans doing on the earth? And so the Lord um, says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now Satan has been roaming around on the earth in the verse that I referenced earlier in 1 Peter 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. Um, says that Satan is a lion, you know, roaming about, seeking someone to devour. That's kind of the idea of what he's doing here in verse 7. And so the Lord asked him, have you considered my servant Job? Have you seen Job? And look what the Lord says about Job. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Why do you think the Lord singles Job out? Perhaps there have been other righteous men on the face of the earth. Why didn't the Lord speak of them? Why does he point out Job? I believe that God singles out Job because what God is really doing is he's poking at Satan, trying to get Satan to what he ultimately does, try and tempt Job so that Job can be a great example for us. So I believe God is totally setting up the stage for the rest of the book by pointing out Job and by essentially tempting, if you will, Satan to try and prove God wrong. In this way, by pointing out Job, he can get Satan to try and prove God wrong. Satan can use Job to prove God wrong. And so, verse 9 becomes almost the thesis of the book. And perhaps this is the key verse of the book. It says, Does Job, the, then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job sir, fear God for nothing? And so the rest of the book is kind of built on this question. Will Job fear the Lord? Will Job continue to serve the Lord? Will Job stay faithful to the Lord even if it profits him nothing? In the eyes of Satan, Job is being blessed by God 
And if he's being blessed by God, there's no reason for Job not to serve the Lord. And so Satan wants to give Job a reason to turn his back on God. And so, jo- uh, and so Satan accuses God of blessing him and protecting him and essentially making life easy for him because he serves God. And Satan says in verse 11, Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Satan says, God, if you just put your hand against Job, if you just take away what he has, if you just stop blessing him so much, then then Job will curse you and stop serving you. And we will really see how righteous this Job guy is. When God thinks of you and when God speaks about you, can God really say that you are someone who is truly dedicated to following Him? May we all be able, may, may, may for all of us, the Lord will be able to say of us what He says of Job, that we are blameless and upright, that we fear him and we turn away from evil. May the Lord see us that way and may we live our lives in a way that God will say that of us. In verse 13 it says, Now on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their older brother's house, A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up all the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. In verse 12, the Lord has given permission for Satan to begin testing Job. But God says, do not put your hand on him. Meaning, uh, Satan was able to, to test Job in any way he'd like except he couldn't hurt Job, his person. He couldn't hurt the person of Job. He couldn't touch his body, but he could touch anything else around Job. And so Satan leaves and gets right to work. And so a messenger, uh, while while Job's sons and daughters in verse 13 were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, a messenger comes to Job and says that the Sabaeans 
has have taken the oxen and the donkeys and killed Job's servants. All of Job's servants except the one who the Sabaeans allowed to escape to tell Job of his misfortune. And while that servant was speaking, another servant came up and said that fire from God fell down from heaven and killed the sheep and the servants, all except one who escaped to tell Job. And while that one was still speaking, another came and said that the Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them and killed the servants, all except the messenger. And while he was still speaking, a fourth one came and said that Job's children were eating and drinking and wine in their oldest brother's house like they normally did. And a great wind came across the wilderness and tore down the house. And they all died, except this one servant. Can you see a pattern in these four disasters of Job? The first one, in verse 14 through 15, are a man's attack, are human's attack. The Sabaeans were the ones who attacked. In verse 16, it appears that the Lord has attacked Job. For it says, the fire of God fell from heaven. And so there is a structure to this section. First, we have man's attack, the Sabaeans. And then we have an attack from nature, or perhaps an attack from God, this fire from heaven, in verse 16. And then we have man's attack again, the Chaldeans, in verse 17. And then finally, we end with verse 18 through 19, a nature's attack, or perhaps an attack from God, that a great wind broke down the house of Job's children and killed them all. Satan gets right to work. He does not leave any time for Job to continue to serve the Lord faithfully. When God gives him permission to tempt Job and to try Job, he gets right on it. And what Satan does is he takes away everything from Job and he kills everything except one servant from each of the four disasters. And Satan saves only one so that they could go and bring Job the bad news. That, perhaps, is one of the most cruel things that Satan could do to Job. He only spares those who will further tempt Job, and who will bring Job bad news, to cause him to doubt in the Lord and to cause him to become angry with the Lord so that he will turn on God and stop following him faithfully. If you you were Job 
And one day, you're serving the Lord the best you can. You're sacrificing the Lord, perhaps regularly, for other people. And, and, and in today's world, perhaps that means you've been praying to the Lord, you've been studying, you've been reading, you've been dedicated to the Lord the best you can. You've been doing everything that you know you need to be doing. And even you're doing more than that. That you're really showing how much you love God and you care about Him and you want to serve Him. And so you're doing everything, everything, everything. How would you respond if God one day seemingly took it all away? All your family, except your wife. All your possessions, except four servants. How would you respond if God left you barren with nothing? Would you stay faithful to the Lord even if it made you suffer to this extent? Would you stay faithful? What would you do? What would you do if this happened to you? Would you look at the Lord with contempt and say, God, why are you doing this to me? Would you shake your fist at him? Would you look up at heaven and say, God, this is all your fault. I can't believe you're doing this to me. Would you say, I'm done with this whole Jesus thing. I'm done with this whole Christian thing. I'm giving up. How would you react? How would you respond? It would be easy to just give it all up. It would be easy just to walk away and say, the Lord hates me, so I will hate him back. But does the Lord hate Job? No, he doesn't. We do not know always why we go through the things we do. But if we are trying to do what is right, we can confidently say the Lord does not hate us either. And so, let's read what Job does in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. If this happened to you, would you look up to heaven, shake your fist and say, God, this is all your fault? Or would you be like Job and bow down to the ground in humility and worship our great God? When Job learns of all the things that he has begun suffering, when Job learns of the disasters that have happened to him, he bows down, he 
tears his robe and shaves his head. That's a sign in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament of mourning. So he tears his robe and he shaves his head and he falls to the ground and worships. Perhaps for us today, and even for Job, it would have been tempting and easy to blame God. Say, God, this is all your fault. God, why are you doing this to me? But yet Job has an attitude different and contrary to the one we may be tempted to have. And perhaps Job would have been justified in a sense, not truly, not really, but Job could have justified in his own mind that he would have been just in blaming the Lord because some of the attacks and the disasters in verses 4 through 19, as we noted with uh, verse 16 and in verse 19 through uh, verse 18 through 19, seem to be attacks of nature, attacks from the Lord. And so perhaps Job could have tried and justified himself by saying, these attacks were from the Lord, from nature. So Job could have shook in his fist and said, God, this is all your fault. Even when Satan burns down the seeming hedges around Job, that Satan claims that God has set up for Job in verse 10, in verse 10, even when Satan seemingly has broken down those barriers, Job still falls down and worships God. And he does not blame God for the things that have happened to him. How can Job praise the Lord, worship the Lord, bless the Lord, when it seems like God is the one behind this? And so he is. How can Job do this? And it's because of verse 21 did you see Job's attitude? Look at what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Job acknowledges that he brought nothing into this world, and he's not going to take anything out of it. Job knows where all his blessings came from. It did not come from his greatness. It did not come from his work or how good of a you know master he was or how awesome he was at uh, you know hiring people or whatever. Job knew that it wasn't because of how great he was. It was because the Lord had blessed him. Everything Job had was from the Lord, and so when Job acknowledges the Lord has taken it away. He can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because the Lord had given to him everything. So when the Lord has seemingly taken it all away, Job does not blame God. Because he believes God has the power to give and to take. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. He came into the world with nothing, and he's going to die and take nothing with him. 
And there's a question of whether or not Job really knew anything about the eternity, as we mentioned earlier. Does Job really know anything about the afterlife? As we're going to see that it appears he does not, though there are some passages in here that may give us some questions about that. The Lord willing, we can address when we get there. And I don't claim to have all the answers to all those verses. But I could try and show you what I believe Job really thought and really believed. And so while Job, when he says, Naked I came from my mother's room and naked I shall return there, he simply just means he, born, he was born and he died with nothing. That he was born bringing nothing into the world. He's going to die with nothing. But for us, perhaps, we think about the eternity. About those who are in Christ who will gain the blessing of everlasting life. And when we say, naked we were born and naked we shall return to the grave, we think often of the idea of, don't store up treasures here on earth in Matthew chapter 6. Store up treasures in heaven. And we know that when we die, we will not take any of the treasures here on earth to heaven with us. But perhaps Job did not realize this. He simply only sees the physical and does not realize the spiritual nature of an afterlife. And so it says in verse 22, Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, I don't think that verse 22 is like verse 9. In that verse 9 is a key verse that kind of encapsulates the entirety of the book of Job. Verse 22 is only true of the first trial of Job and the first part of the second trial of Job. Remember, the book is divided uh, I do not know if I, rem- I don't remember if I mentioned this earlier, but the book of Job is divided into two trials. Chapter 1 is a trial where Satan takes away everything from Job, but he's not allowed to hurt Job himself. But in chapter 2, Satan will go again before the Lord, and the Lord there will, will give Satan new permissions. That Satan can touch Job, just not kill him. And so... The second trial of Job is the majority of the book, chapters 22 through the first part, or excuse me, chapter, uh, the second trial of Job is the majority of the book, chapters 2 through the first part of chapter 42. And so it appears to me that in the second trial of Satan, uh, of Job, the Job does lash out. And say some things to the Lord that he needs to repent of. And he does at the end of the book. And so, verse 22 of chapter 1, I believe is only applicable to this first trial. That through all these things that Job just suffered in chapter 1, he did not sin, nor did he blame God. Yet, I will note that in the second trial, though Job seemingly has sinned, has spoken out too strongly, too boldly, has said some things that he ought not have said to the Lord, he still 
does not give up his integrity. He still hopes in the Lord. He still wishes for God to bring him justice. And so Job, though he sins, does not turn his back on the Lord. He stays righteous, though with sin. And he stays faithful to the Lord through all his trying times. We need the book of Job. We need it because it's true. We all suffer. But may we all suffer, as Peter says in First Peter, may we all suffer as a Christian and not as an evildoer. We need to realize that all we have is from the Lord, and so when the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, we will stand and say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And when we go through trials that we don't have answers to, may we continue to say that we will stay faithful to the Lord. And may we never blame God or sin against the Lord because of what we suffer here on earth. May we keep our eyes on heaven, looking for and hastening the day the Lord will come back and bring home the righteous to be with Him in eternity. In a place where there is no tears. A place where there is no suffering. Only the Lord and only His people. Where we can live with Him in eternity. May we keep our eyes on heaven. May we see the suffering here as temporary. It's only temporary. Short, small. It has nothing compared to the glory which we will receive when He comes back. Thank you all so much for listening to Job chapter 1. And Lord willing, soon we will dive in to Job chapter 2. Have a blessed rest of your day. Thank you.